You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. Everyone loves a good love story. Even us gents, right? We, even guys like a good love story. But there are some things with guys and love stories that you need to know. It's got to be real, right? Hallmark love stories don't do it for us. It just, uh, no offense, ladies. I know some of you love them, but they just don't. Like, it doesn't feel real. There's something contrived in the midst of it. Um, but even guys like a good romance, which leads me to this. Have you ever asked the question, what makes something romantic? Why is a picture of a heart or a rose, a note, a four-foot-tall teddy bear with chocolate hearts, why are those things considered romantic? And it's important to us Americans. Americans this year spent, I couldn't believe it when I saw the number, $23.9 billion on Valentine's Day this year. So romance is a big deal. Why? Well, in all my study of romance, right, there are a couple key features that make a good romance story. I want to break those down for you today. The first is that the symbols involved in romance point to something greater. They point to something greater. We actually see that in the text of Scripture today in Hebrews 8.5. They serve a copy and a shadow of, a, of the heavenly things, right? The heart written on a note is just a sign of affection one feels for another. The rose reflects the beauty of the one that would receive it. Whatever gift you give or receive, if it's good, it points to something beyond the gift. A good romance always involves some sort of symbolism. The second thing a good romance does is there's an echo of shared experience. There's an echo of shared experience. Many couples do this. Many couples go to the same place for every anniversary, right? Or many couples will revisit locations that they have visited before. And even I had one couple that was like, for our anniversary every year, we always go somewhere different. That's how we celebrate our anniversary. Well, that's a shared echo, believe it or not. You always do the same thing. You always do something different, right? There's the shared echo that takes place. In one of the most beautiful cinematic love stories ever told between Princess Leia Organa and the scoundrel Han Solo, right? We laugh at a natural and real moment when Han is about to be frozen in carbonite and Leia looks at Han and says, I love you. And Han responds with, I know. And then in the next film, there's the payoff moment, right? Where Han looks at Leia and says, I love you. And she responds with, I know. It's the echo of shared experience. It's a real moment that exists in a good love story. The third thing is, is there's always a pursuit. 
someone chasing after someone else. And many of us have experienced this, maybe not just in romantic relationships, but in the way we pursue our children, the way we pursue our grandchildren. And maybe you've had a job that has pursued you for employment, um, and they want to start a relationship with you, right? But let's just stick to romantics, because we've all seen those movies or read those books. Let me give you a real-life example, okay? When Corey met me, she was crazy about me. I said that wrong. Let me rephrase that. She thought I was crazy. That's, that's very easy to get mixed up, okay? I apologize. And so um, she found out that I was interested in her, and so she invited me out to coffee. Yes, right? And then she took my heart out with all its hopes and dreams, and she smashed it with a bat and said, no, I'm not dating you, right? And if it wasn't for the good latte I was drinking, it would have been much worse. But luckily it was good. And I knew at that moment I had to pursue her. Not like in a creepy way, right? Like I'm not like following her like, hey, how are you? You interested now? Don't do that, guys, okay? Don't do that. But I had to be your friend. In that moment, I knew I had to change tactics, right? I had to put her first in the relationship. I had to display uh, the fruit of the Spirit in the way I uh, pursued her and loved her. And eventually, she did fall for me. But it's the pursuit that makes all the great romance stories so memorable, You might have seen them on television. You might have seen them in movies. If there's not a pursuit, we sit there looking at the romance going, eh, those are the ones we forget. But the chase is on either way, whether it's maybe, I'm sure many of you in this room desire to be pursued, and probably the other half in this room desire to one day pursue somebody. You remember those times, right? Fourth thing about romance. It builds naturally on what has come before. I think this is most clear in the period of what we call the engagement period. It's the moment where one person says to another, I would like to spend the rest of my life with you. And so they put a ring, right, a symbol on their finger. The ring is a symbol of what? Sure, we can get all sappy, right, of love, of devotion, of care. But really, what that ring is, is it points to a greater ring to come. It's a reminder that at some point there's going to be another ring slid on that finger that has even more importance to the covenant or the relationship that's being put forward. It's going from, I want to marry you. I'm going to marry you. I will work towards marrying you. And then this new covenant says, this new ring says, it's complete. I have married you. All the symbols up to this point, all the echoes of our relationship, all the shared experiences, everything leading up to this point is actualized in a moment of marriage, of a covenant between a man and a wife, where they say, with this ring, I thee wed. And have you ever thought about the engagement period? Right, like really thought about it. I mean, it's, so in- it's an interesting concept. It's not like marriage in any culture is designed like an auction, right? We don't go to the auction block and we're like, I'll take that one for 700, Bob, right? Like that's not how marriage happens in any culture, nor does engagement happen right, right that way. In all cultures, it seems that there is a courtship period. And then at some point they decide, yes, the marriage will happen. 
and then there is a preparation for the day, and then the marriage takes place. This is in all cultures. Even in cultures where it's prearranged marriages, where the, the, the parents of the spouses are prepping them. There's even an engagement period there. You got engaged. Why don't we just get married, right? Why don't y'all just like march down to my office and you're like, hey, pastor, we're going to just get married. We're going to skip the engagement period. We're going to go all Nike. We're just going to do it, right? We're going to have marriage right here in the office. Skip it. No, but there's something special. There's something beautiful in this moment. And I think it's a good analogy of the love story that takes place within the text of Scripture with the covenants that God has made with his people. We're going to see all four of these aspects to the proper love story in the text of Scripture. We see the symbols. We see the echoes. We see the pursuit. And we see that it naturally builds on the story that has come before. In theological terms, we call this the difference and we call this the exploration of of the old covenant versus the new covenant. And we're going to see that played out today in today's text. Uh, This is how today's sermon is going to break down. Part one, we're going to see the love letter of the new covenant of God laid out for us. Part two, we're going to see the symbols of the old covenant fulfilled in the new covenant. And part three, we're finally going to see the covenant itself sealed. We see it guaranteed. We see that it's good for us because our God has pursued us. So let's begin at part one, which is all of chapter eight. So listen to me as I read you the text this morning. If you could help me with the slides, that'd be great for the sermon part. Now the point is what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that is shown to you on the mountain. But as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the, old, than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, listen to this. This is quoted from Jeremiah. It's so beautiful. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful towards their iniquities 
and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the love letter of the new covenant. Now, I know covenant is not a term we use in regular language, so let me define it for us. I want you to think of covenant when you see it in Scripture as a binding relationship. The, the most common place that we see a covenant made is actually at the, a marriage, right? It is a binding relationship that takes place. And as you start to read verse 8, if you're following along in the text of Scripture, it reads so much like a love letter to the people of God. And so I want to put it in modern terms for you to maybe help bridge the gap. So you feel free to follow along starting in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new kind of relationship with you. And then he calls them by name. Now, believe it or not, if you're ever writing a love letter, the name of the beloved is very important to include in it. You want to name who it is so it doesn't look like you ripped it off the Internet for some book, right? But he includes the name of his beloved. Let me continue. It'll be a relationship that is richer than the one we had before. When I was your rescuer from slavery, for you soon after abandoned my love. So I let you be away from me for for a time. But this new type of relationship will not just be contained in the space of a country, but will be placed in the space of your heart. I will be yours, and you will be mine. And you won't have to ask your neighbor, Do you know my beloved? For I will be known by all. I will love the least and the greatest. I will be merciful towards them who have hurt me. And I will remember their wrongs no more. It is so similar to the, to the language that we find in a wedding vow, isn't it? For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. Till death do us part. This is the beautiful words described in the book of Jeremiah that's echoed in the text of Hebrews. Now, to give you some context, the people of Jeremiah's day had turned their face from God. They had abandoned Yahweh God. They had abandoned the covenant that they had made with Yahweh. But Yahweh would not abandon his people. And not only would he not abandon them, he would bring about a new covenant so much greater sealed by a more intimate Savior, that they would know their God differently than their ancestors did. And this is the pleading that the author is making to the original audience of the book of Hebrews, that they are Jews that are considering to go back to the old covenant. He is saying to them at this moment, if you're married, why on earth would you go back to the engagement period? Especially if it's like a great spouse. Why would you say to a great spouse, you know, I'd kind of like to only have dinner with you maybe once or twice a week. I'll see you on the weekends. I'm not really interested in the intimacy that our marriage provides. I'd rather have the symbol that points to it. What foolishness. And that's what he's calling the original audience. And that's what he's saying to us. 
Don't be deceived by a, a law. For you are granted a covenant greater than that. This new covenant offered is the culmination of the love story of God of the Bible, who pursues his people, who plants the echoes within the story, who uses symbolism that builds on the relationship as it expands. So the passage then, after saying all this, actually goes back to the engagement period because he wants to remind the reader of all the symbols that were used in the engagement period that pointed to the new covenant to come. And so we see this in Hebrews 9, 1 through 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seats. On these things we cannot now speak, we can now, cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, which would take place, we're about to see, in Christ. I want you to see the symbols of the new covenant, I mean, of the old old covenant used to fulfill the new covenant. Um, At some point, I really hope to do a sermon series just on the temple itself, because even the architecture of the temple points to the beauty of the relationship that Christ offers us. It really is astounding when you actually see the details imposed upon the text of Scripture and many parts of Scripture that when we find ourselves in, we're like, oh, we're here again. They're doing measurements of a building. Yay, right? But even those portions of Scripture point to the love that God the Father has for his people, and it ultimately also points to Jesus. Now, if you're following along in your Bibles, I want you to underline the word holiness at the end of verse 1. And honestly, any time that you see holy in that chapter, that's kind of the, the, the main emphasis of this section. My small group was talking about this concept this week, and we were talking about how we've lost in America, right, what it means to have a holy space. What does it mean to have a holy space? A space that is seen as transcendent, to be holy. Like, we don't have that anymore, right? Most churches prior to the church growth movement in the 70s were built with the transcendent in mind. You actually kind of see it in this room. The reason you have a large upper um, beauty of, of the wood all around us is it's supposed to draw our gaze to heaven. When you walk into the old cathedrals that were built 100 years ago, there is this very real sense when you step across into the building of 
This is different, and they were designed that way. And somewhere in the last several years, we've moved um, from our focus being on the transcendent holy space to now it being more of an auditorium, um, or or churches are built more like theaters. And and you need to know this because you live in it, especially those of you that are my age or younger, you've never been exposed to anything else, right? We've had a drastic change in the way that we view holy space in the last 200 years. Uh, For most churches in the history of the church, the holy space was the existence of the altar that stood in the front. It was a holy place set aside that only the priest or their pastor could go. The focus of the whole worship service, and it's still that way in many denominations all across the country, is the altar, the table of the Lord that would take place. And somewhere in the past 200 years, the focus moved to actually be the pulpit. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, uh, but it's suddenly the word of God spoken that is the holy moment that speaks into our hearts. And now, for many churches, the holy space is the stage. It's how the worship band or the pastor makes you feel in that moment. And if you don't feel anything leaving service, well, then God clearly wasn't present which is dangerous. And we're not going to dive into those whole concepts today. I'm prepping you for it. We will dive into those concepts in the future because it has a lot to do with the way that we approach a holy God. But I want you to know that we've lost, right, what it means to, to exist in a holy space. I'll ask you a question. When was the last time that you entered a holy space? And for many of us here, it might be never. We might be numb to it, right? Maybe the closest you've gotten is that mountaintop view, right? Sunrise, Eagle Bluff, Colorado, and you're going, whoa. It's that sense of awe in that moment. Maybe it's one in, in walking into one of those old-style cathedrals, you know? I've got to, um, I, I sang at Mass at St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome one time, and you walk into that space, and it's like, whoa, Right? Those places, I think, still exist that draw awe, but I think for the most part, we miss them, which I think is a shame. I hope you're able to walk into a place that one day grants you awe. But my fear is we've become numb to this concept. So here in the text, we find an earthly place of holiness. And when you hear an earthly place of holiness, you're like, what's that? What is this? It's a place set aside for worship in a tent. And a holy place stood for three, uh, in this holy place stood three holy things. Three holy things that were set aside, a lampstand, a table, and the bread of, prince, bread of presence. And I want to focus on those real briefly because it, again, is symbology that points to the love story of our God. Now, the lampstand was a menorah. And one of the jobs of the priest was to make sure that the light never went out during the night. It was a symbol of what was to come, John eight twelve, And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The lampstand pointed to the light to come. Think about the bread of presence. Bread of presence was actually 12 loaves. They were always fresh. When the week was up, new loaves were brought the priest would consume the old loaves. But there was always bread, and it would always have to be replaced until someone came 
and claimed something differently. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then the tent itself, right, would be placed in the temple in Jerusalem, but there would be no need for a temple when Jesus would come. Why? Because we see this in John. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. All the things that took place in the temple, the light and the bread, were all a reflection of the love that God had for you that was ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant with Jesus. And in the most holy place that the high priest would go but once a year, it was, it was a taste that was given to the nation of Israel of what was to come. Follow along in verse 3, we find the most holy place. And here, only one priest could enter once a year, and he had to be clean lest he die. And within the most holy place was the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, the golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that was budding in the Ten Commandments. Let me give you what those things pointed to. The incense, when it was lit, was supposed to symbolize, symbolize the prayers of the nation of Israel raising to heaven as a sweet aroma. What does our Father do for us on our behalf at heaven at this very moment? He offers up a sweet aroma of prayers to his Father for us on our behalf. The ark was a memory chest within those places, a good thing for us to kind of uh, compare it to. It's like those sections of your house that are littered with pictures that remind you of the good times, that remind you of these sacred moments that have taken place over the course of your lives, that reminds you of the the blessings that have been given to you. It's very similar in this memory chest, right? God gave us the Ten Commandments. Why? It was a visible law to the law that would later be written on the hearts of mankind. He made Aaron's staff blossom as a sign of his power and presence with his promised priest, number 17.8. And he gave the people manna from heaven to preserve them in their wilderness wanderings. But the big deal of the space, right, was the mercy seat, overshadowed by the cherubim, to remind us of the throne room of God described to us in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the priests who entered the most holy place did so with the fear and trembling cried out by Isaiah in Isaiah 6. There was a real sense of awe and transcendence of the holy that I fear we miss as children of the Enlightenment that took place when they moved back the curtain and entered into the space. But this is what's so amazing. I think the desire for the transcendent is actually imparted to us in our very DNA. We crave the sacred. 
We crave something greater than us. It is built into us. R.C. Sproul once remarked that he, he would call us uh, homo religioso, right? And when he says this, he quotes uh, Marcia Eliade, one of the leading historians of religion of the 20th century in his book, The Sacred and Profane. This is what Marcia said. To whatever degree we may have desacralized the world, the man has made his choice in the favor of the profane life, never succeeds in completely doing away with religious behavior. That's why when even famed atheist Richard Dawkins looks at the complexity of the human cell, he's in awe. The transcendent has taken place. That's why small children, no matter what religious background, they've actually done psychological studies on them, are almost hardwired to be theists. They ask questions that go beyond this life. It's because we actually had a creator that built us for it. We long for the transcendent. We long for it. And so transcendent imagery was offered to the nation of Israel in an earthly tent, not as an end to itself, but to point to something greater, to point to the Messiah to come, to point to the relationship the God of the universe offers to mankind. To quote from chapter uh, 8, verse 5, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That same pattern exists in heaven in a real form, built by hands, not by man. In heaven now, the God of the universe sits on his mercy seat, offers up promises as the great high priest. He fulfills the law. He preserves our salvation as the manna in the desert in the wilderness did. And he offers up prayers to God that float to his father like a lit altar of incense. That is the love story that is offered to us. That is the love letter of the new covenant. But then we see it sealed in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. Let me finish with these verses today. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of, his crea- not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We see this here. We see the covenant sealed. We see it guaranteed. We see that it's good for us, and we see that God has pursued us through all of it. You see, all the symbols of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus and his work. All the echoes within the text of Scripture ultimately point to Jesus. And the current work that Jesus does on our behalf points to his great love that he has for you and me. And now that the work is fulfilled, we now wait eagerly for the groom of the greatest love story that's ever told. There is a very real sense in which the old covenant displayed in the Old Testament was but an engagement period of the marriage that would come in the new covenant. But there is also a very real sense that the church age here and now, this new covenant relationship we have is also but an engagement period of the hope that we have to come when Jesus Christ returns 
comes again and the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. We see this in Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the wedding that we get to look forward to where even the echoes that existed in the Old Testament that pointed to the New and the echoes that exist in New Covenant that we live in now will ultimately point to a greater reality in which we get to experience God. So how do we respond to the New Covenant love story? How do we respond to the New Covenant love story? Well, that's the question, isn't it? That's the question all of us must respond to at some point. How will I respond to the free gift of salvation offered to me by a holy God, by a God who desires me, by a God who pursues me, by a God that puts echoes in front of me, by a God that builds on the beauty of the relationships that have come before us? The Lord will not marry a bride that does not want to be with him. So if you deny Christ, you need to know that you will not receive heaven. For the focus of heaven is Jesus. And if you hate Jesus, heaven would be your hell. So will you respond to the offer of salvation, of right relationship, of intimacy with your creator? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Will you respond? Will you repent and believe the gospel? Or will you try to find the good romance story outside the ultimate one with the idols that come in this earth that are but cheap imitations of the real relationship offered to us in Christ? Now, let's be real. Some of us love cheap imitations, right? Some of us love those things. But here's the thing with cheap imitations they break. Christ does not. So how should this impact the big questions of life, right? The most common questions that mankind asks are these two. Will I ever be loved? And what am I to do? Will I ever be loved? And what am I to do? And this new covenant answers those questions profoundly. The resounding answer from your creator is that he loves you without ending. He has this never-ending love that he offers you. Romans 8, 37 through 39. If you want a verse to memorize that is a pick-me-up at any time of the day, this is the one, ladies and gentlemen, okay? Romans 8, 37 through 39. No, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And for those of us that ask the second question, what am I to do? We've been given the great commandment and the Great Commission. 
And in those commandments, we reflect the love of God to the world. We use the images of the cross to point to him. We echo his message to a lost world. We pursue our neighbors. And we use all these things to build his kingdom. For Christ is the cornerstone of the house that's being built. For those of you that are like, what's the great commandment? What's the great commission? Let me give you a reminder. The great commandments. Love God. Love your neighbor. Pursue them. Sacrifice for them. Model Christ's love for them. Echo the words of Scripture to them in all that we do. Reminder of the Great Commission. Go. Make disciples of all nations. That means that we're to be outward facing in our worship of God. We desire for others to come to know the same Jesus that we have experienced. We make disciples. We come alongside others and do the Christian life with them. We are disciple makers, which is just a fancy term of saying we actually do life together. And all the nations are who we are to pursue. We pursue those whom the world would have us divided by race, by creed, by class, by color. We pursue all people no matter what things that politics try to shove in and divide us. We offer the bridge. Those who think differently in life than we do, we are to be for their good, for their welfare, for we desire them to meet their God, which is Yahweh, Jesus, for he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. So what should that mean this week, this week for you? I'm going to give you a challenge. I gave this challenge last year. I gave it every year I've done ministry. We've talked about a holy space. Holy just means set apart, right? On this holy week, will you set apart the week to be different than the other weeks of the year? Every year during Holy Week, for the last 15, I've read the Gospel of John, right? It's just what I do. It's set apart. I might change it up this year. I might do something different, right? I might go back to my, I love the gospel of John. I might go back. I don't know yet. We'll find out this afternoon. I don't want feeling. But do something different to make this space in time wholly set apart for you. And then I would encourage you as, as the Great Commission commands to be outward facing in that process. We have tons of people in this community that do not have a church home. If there is a week to invite someone to church, this is it. Hey, you got somewhere where you're worshiping on Sunday? You should come to church with me to worship the God of the universe. May this text remind us that we do not offer condemnation. We offer great love, great covenant community. All these things we get to do, if any time, <laughs> we should do it all the time, but if any time, this week. So I would encourage you this week, invite a neighbor Invite a coworker. Invite some stranger off the street for all I care. But the number one way that people come to church on Sunday, Facebook ads. Oh, no, that's not it. Okay, it's not Facebook ads. We, ad, we can put an ad in the newspaper. That'll get people. No, that's not it. We should advertise on Hicks TV. That's a really good idea, right? We can put my sermons out there, scare people, right? No, that's not it. The number one way that people begin to come to church and find a changed life is from a friend inviting them to come along. It's the number one way. 
That's the, that's the key of the church growth movement and has been for the last 2,000 years. Hasn't changed. I would encourage you to do that this week. And enter into a new covenant love story. Enter into a new covenant love story. For he is our God, and may we be his people. Amen? Bow your heads with me.